Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Things are crazy right now. We've, we're dealing with inflation, retirement accounts, stock market falling, uh, politi- politically correctness, wokeness, uh, vaccine, broken families, stupid administration. Um, and where is the church? silent. It's silent. I believe that we would not be in this situation right now if the church actually would stand according to God's word and have a little bit of a backbone, right? And not, and not cave. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So <laughs> there's another one. Stick to notes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So there's going to be a lot that we're going to be talking about. There's two things primarily, two major problem, problems that I see. Number one is war on truth. Guys, there is a war on truth, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Five of you? Cool. Um, the second issue is the sanctification issue you say, well, why is sanctification an issue? I'm going to get to that. Um, but fighting the war, right? Because that's the sanctifi- part of the sanctification process is fighting the war, being equipped, and standing firm in God's word and on God's word, right? Amen? Okay, sometimes I demand a lot of participation, so uh, <laughs> appreciate it, buddy. Amen. All right. So um, hopefully after talking about these two things, I'll be able to tie it all up at the end and it'll all make sense. I was talking to Matt. I said, man, I just feel like the Holy Spirit has really put a message on my heart, and I don't know how to condense it, like cut it down, because I'm going to be speaking on, I wouldn't speak on this, but also on family and God's design for it, and I was talking to him about this, and he's like, hey, don't cut it down. Like, everything you're saying needs to be said. So this is going to be a two-part series And then in the third week, we're going to talk about family and God's design for it, okay? All right, so the next week is going to be really good. So if you're not going to be here, you've got to check it out on the, on the, uh, on on the, what what is it? YouTube, Vimeo? (laughs) All the things. All right, so two major problems if you're taking notes, because on my notes that I provided, all I did was provide the scriptures that I'm going to be using. So, you know, I encourage you to take notes. The two things, war on truth sanctification, and then tying it all in kind of at the end. So the first verse here, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, which in the Greek means evidence or to test, and for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now we've heard that verse before, but I just want to highlight that second part that says, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's not comfortable. 
but it's in God's word, right? And I think a lot of times that we're in a society where we want to live in this consumer, Christian-driven kind of culture, right? And I'm, I'm not looking at anybody. Um, you know, where's the kids' program? Where's the, the big lights? Where's all these different things? Where's all the stuff? And I'm not saying those things are bad, okay? So don't, don't misunderstand. I, I, well, I'll get to that. <laughs> but... Um, Where's all the stuff? Why don't we have it? Right? It's like, oh, and if, it doesn't ha- if we don't have it, kind of the, the teaching or God's word becomes secondary to those things that actually need to meet. We, we, we kinda, I call it hiding behind the cross because we say, okay, well, we need to have that. My family needs that. These things are here. We, we just have to have that so that we can engage in the church. That's not, I don't find a biblical model for that. So we're going to be talking about how the scripture is used to sometimes make you feel a little uncomfortable because people just want to feel comfortable. And here's the deal. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're an anomaly, but I don't grow or go to the next level when I'm comfortable. You only go to the next level when you're feeling friction. That's why a lot of times I say embrace the, fi- embrace the friction. Get Good, if I can say it this way, get good at loving friction because that means you're growing. You guys hear me? Amen. Okay. So, this is going to be uncomfortable. This message will be uncomfortable. It will offend some of you. I'm okay with that. Okay? So, I'm just saying because I'm not here to please man, I'm here to please God. And I want to stick to His word. So, I'm going to ask you for three things. Number one, seek to understand, not misunderstand. Seek the heart. Blake, it's funny, Blake came to me the other day, we were talking, and he's like, because we were talking about how, because I hate text. I absolutely hate it. And I have a rule that if we text more than three times, then it's a conversation, I'm going to pick up the phone. Okay? I cannot stand text. You lose voice inflection, you lose tonality, you lose body language, you lose all of the things, and then you sit there and you go, what do they mean by that? What, 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 wait a minute, there was a smiley face and then there was like a cross smiley face. Oh, oh, what? I know what he meant by that. You know, it's just like this whole thing and it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I'm gonna pick up the phone and I'm gonna call, right? But Blake was saying, he's like, man, you are so direct over text. I know that. I'm a direct person. <laughs> so I'm direct over text. He's like, but I just know your heart, and that's not really how you meant that. And so that's what I'm saying here. Seek to understand, not misunderstand. Does this make sense? Okay, number two, test everything that you hear. I am a man, not they, them, I'm an actual man. <laughs> Oh my gosh, stick to notes, stick to notes, stick to notes. (laughs) And I make a lot of mistakes, okay? No amen for my family. Okay, so I do, I make a lot of mistakes. So test me, everything that you hear. Be like what Paul encouraged us to be, like the noble Bereans, testing everything. They knew what Paul's reputation, they knew who he was. But they were looking at Paul and going, we know who you are, but we're going to actually take what you're saying and go match it up with the word. 
We're not consumer Christians. Okay? We're growing. We want to be uncomfortable. God, make us uncomfortable. Have an attitude, number three, of receiving what the Lord would want to impart to you today. Amen? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. I can't tell you that enough. For the price that you paid and the sacrifice for our sins. Because without that, I was condemned to a life of torment and hell. And you sent your son to take my place. God, thank you. I also realize the awesome responsibility that I have of being able to teach your word. And I don't take that lightly. So God, I don't want these to be my words. I want them to be yours. I want your words to land on good soil and penetrate the callus in our hearts. Remove that, God. Lord, we need you, and we want to go out of here today changed. Your remnant church, God. And Lord, if there's something that I get out of, out of what you want me to say, and I, and I, enter my, I have self involved, then correct me. Because I just want you, more of you, and your word to be shown today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, a little background on me for those of you who don't know. Um, I, I grew up in a Christian home, um, but my, my dad was a military guy, and so... Uh, you know, wasn't a lot of love and feel-good stuff. It was pretty much drill sergeant, uh, sergeant, um, and um, I, I, I don't have the time to go into the whole thing, but basically, excuse me, um, there was a lot of abuse, physical abuse, um, I don't have time for that. But there are situations that, that were, were, you know, I would, I would come home or, you know, walk out of my bedroom or something, and then my dad would, like, he would be beating on my older brother. And uh, it's hard to witness. So I became calloused. I was in a Christian home. I didn't want anything to do with God. I was in a charismatic church at the time, bad theology church, that uh, the doctrine was all messed up, and I became bitter. They taught that you could lose your salvation, so I thought that every week I could just go do whatever I wanted to do and then come on Sunday and then just rededicate my life, and I was good. So I got... Some, some bitterness in my heart, and I decided that I was going to be ready when my dad attacked me or my brother. So I, I got into martial arts for like six years. I was working out all the time. Not the incredible physique you see before you today. It's a little different then. But I was working out all the time, and I was going to be ready. 
the next time. And there were a lot of altercations and things that had happened. But I remember I was a junior in high school, and I was in the shower. My dad was super conservative. He's the kind of guy that was like, you know, look at me. He's like, you know, you need to stand closer to your razor <laughs> kind of guy. And uh, that'll sink in in a minute, I guess, if you didn't get it. But clean-shaven, hair-combed, just very straight-laced, very conservative. And so I grew my hair long and did everything that he hated, okay? And so I remember my mom and my dad were having an argument. I was in the shower, and um, I heard them yelling about me. And so I was like, I had it. I was like, this is my moment. <laughs> so I turned off the water, put a towel around my waist. I go into the bedroom, and they're arguing. And I say my, to my dad, I'm like, you got something to say? Say it to my face. I immediately regretted that because he was middleweight champion boxer in the Navy. And so, um, so he, came, he got in my face and he said, what did you say? And I was like, you heard me? <laughs> and uh, so he kind of shoved me back. And I shoved him and it was on. Full-blown fist fight. It ended with me picking him up and throwing him through his glass shower doors. And, <laughs> and I moved out. I don't share this much because it's still pretty tender, but it's tender because of what the Lord did in my life to repair that. And he, he repaired the relationship with my dad. We became best friends the last three years before he had his motorcycle accident and died. And so I thank God every day for that. But my heart was hard. It was calloused. And so I went off to Bible school this is fast-forwarding, you know, a lot, but I, I went to Bible school because the Lord got a hold of me and said, I've got a different plan for your life, and so I, would, I got my degree in theology, and um, I, I was going to go in the ministry full-time. My first year was so hard because he rebuilt everything that was falsehood and untruth in my heart and in my life and built me with a foundation, having a passion for truth. And that's why to this day, when I hear untruth, I want to speak life and love and not love in this mamsy-pamsy way that society's making it out to be. I'm talking about love, but in truth. Paul says that I don't rejoice, that love does not rejoice in iniquity, which is sin, but rejoices in truth. He defines love. God defined love first in the Bible before Satan hijacked and all his cronies in the world today. So, he rebuilt me in truth and a passion for his word, but then towards the end of that, I met my wife at Bible school, but towards the end of Bible school, I felt like I was being called into the financial world. I was like, wait, God, you don't change your mind, so I thought I was called to the ministry, and he's like, well, you are. It's just not the way that you thought. So, I'm not a pastor. But I always tell people that that's a, I can say whatever I want. I don't care about people leaving the church. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be funny. Uh, but but kind of true. Uh, so, but the point is, is that, so I, I, I focused on truth. I started, you know, having the Lord rebuild that. And um, it really broke me, ripped away a lot of those preconceived ideas. So there is a war on truth. Satan distorts and twists the truth by tainting it with lies and using beauty to deceive. You guys get that? 
using beauty to deceive. I heard a great quote. I don't know who said it, um, but it said, beauty is the battlefield upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. Think about that for a minute. Aren't we attracted to good-looking things? Aren't we? Beauty is the battlefield upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. We're all attracted to beauty. But here's the thing. If you want to pass off lie for truth, you have to wrap it in a good thing. That literally is the definition of deception. If you knew, you wouldn't be deceived. That's how it works. We do this with our language, for example. And I'm going to use some of the things from equip.org actually to help me out with some of these things because I like some of the things that they said. But we're going to talk about words where we're attracted to making something that maybe may feel us feel a little bit uncomfortable because we want it to sound better. Right? Those of you who have kids know exactly what I'm talking about anyway, because you go and it's like you, you, you have some, they, something happens, and then you go, you go to them and you're like, okay, so just tell me what happened. And it's always like, well, <laughs> you know, the foot swings, and they're like, I mean, something kind of ended up just you know, hitting in the head. It's like, wait, what? Let's go back to that part, right? Because they want to make sure it's, it's in us, it's in all of us, it's in our humanity, it's in our fallen nature, that's, the way, that's what we're attracted to. And we want to pass off things that we do even that aren't as bad, and we want to make them sound a little bit better than they actually are. Can anybody see what I'm saying? Your truth. Sounds so Oprah Winfrey, doesn't it? The truth of the matter is, is that there's only... The truth, not your truth. <clears throat> Something that is true is true whether you believe that to be true or not. You can have beliefs, but those beliefs are not true. You realize that? You can have beliefs about something, but those beliefs are not true. It doesn't make it true. And it doesn't make it true just because you have your 25 friends that agree with you. That's called herd mentality. It's a falsehood. You got to be careful with that. We do it. I do it. It's like, hey, bros, you been to that restaurant over there? Yeah, it's great. Cool. I'll go. Right? We're all affected by herd mentality to some degree. Right? That's what makes it hard when these things come in and we're like, oh, we won't follow the herd. So I've literally prayed, God, if everybody goes off the cliff, like make me stand all alone by myself. That's me. I'll do it. Make me that person, Lord. Because I don't want to go with the herd. Ben Shapiro says, facts don't care about your feelings. I know that sounds... By the way, you don't have to yell. Truth is offensive anyway, so you might as well just say it however you want. No, I'm kidding. I don't actually believe that. <laughs> but truth by itself is offensive. I was, well, uh, I won't say that. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, when you're having these conversations with people and they say... Well, that's, that's how you see it, that's your belief, that's your truth, or there is no truth, or there is no absolute truth. Do you realize that all of those are absolute statements? 
it's like flip the whole thing on its head. It's hypocrisy. At, I mean, it just, it's so ridiculous, right? Because it's like, well, that's, that's your truth. Well, no, there's only the truth. And by saying that that's your truth, you're making absolutely about a statement about me, which means that you have some sort of truth. That it, anyway, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this again. So let's just say you've got this group of people over here. You've got this people over, over here. It just happens to be the left and the right. This isn't in my notes. <laughs> Stick to the notes. <laughs> Stick to the notes, man. <laughs> so I'll say, left, it, left wants to change reality to go along with their desires, their emotions, their feelings. Isn't that what they, them is? Changing reality to go along with their feelings? God-fearing individuals, God-centered individuals want to change their desires and align them with what God wants. Not what you want. And that's where facts don't care about your feelings apply. It doesn't matter what you think. If what you think doesn't go along with Scripture, by the way, you need to reconcile the fact that the Bible is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate authority. If you are a Christian, the Bible is the ultimate authority. It's not open for negotiation. It's not open for interpretation. There is only one truth. And by the way, if you disagree with somebody on a subject, one of you is wrong. Or both. Because God did not contradict himself in the word. There is only one true intended meeting. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Yes, people say sometimes, well, Paul wrote Romans. He was the instrument. The Holy Spirit wrote Romans. It cannot contradict itself. For example, in Corinthians, when Paul says, I forbid to have a man, for, for a man to have long hair, you and I talked about this, it's not my notes. Um, I, be, I forbid for men to have long hair in Corinthians, but then... Why did he tell Samson to have long hair? That would be on the surface a contradiction, right? Well, we know you can't have a contradiction in Scripture. So then you have to dig in and figure out what the one intended meaning was and what the Holy Spirit was trying to say. And the reality of that situation, to give you just to kind of illustrate the point, in Corinthians there was... Uh, they're young kids. Well... What? He chose? Okay. Well, I just wanted to be sensitive. You will not hear that come out of my mouth very often, so I just wanted to be sensitive to the situation. So there was a lot of sexual immorality happening in Corinthians. They were actually worshiping a pagan god, Aphrodite. And so they were having temple prostitution, and the men were, were growing their hair long, and the women were shaving their heads to blur the gendered creation, the order of creation that God established in Genesis. So Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he said, I forbid to have a man of long hair because he's talking about stop sinning. But if it was a contradiction, he actually told Samson to fulfill the Nazarite vow, right? So that's why he had to have long hair. That's not a contradiction. So if you think it's a contradiction, that's your problem, 
not the person that's talking about it because that's God's word. It sounds so good, right? I committed adultery, but it was just a mistake. It was just a mistake. I did this thing over here. It's just a mistake. We call our sins mistakes. It was a mistake, but it was sin. Right? It was a mistake, but it was sin. That's a violation of God's standard for us. You guys understand what I'm talking about? Inappropriate behavior. It's not appropriate, inappropriate behavior, okay? Maybe burping at the table is inappropriate behavior, and you're like, yeah, that's kind of appropriate. Adultery or whatever you're doing over here in sin, that's not inappropriate behavior. That's sin. And these words are being used today in our culture, and so that's what happens over time. That is a desensitization of truth. Because over time, it's just a slow move. Because stepping from here and then just jumping over here, we could spot that. But just a little bit, step by step. And when we look and we and then hopefully God wakes us up and we go, How? wait a minute, I was supposed to be over there. How did I get here? We distort. We change things. We make, we make terms pretty or sounding less harsh. I hate that word. I hear that. It's like, oh, it's just harsh. Well, let me tell you something. If gravity is at work, okay, and if I tell somebody that gravity's at work and they go, oh, it's not at work, and say, fine, go jump off the building and tell me if it's at work or not. You don't have to agree with the truth that is at work. It's still truth whether you agree or not. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's not like, well, okay, gra gravity, I've always thought that that was just my truth. I don't, uh, it's not your truth. I don't think it applies to you. What? Like, that's so stupid. Like, we say such stupid things, and people say it in the church, and then we, are, we go, oh, yeah, I, I totally get that. What? Why? And it's these words that are used in our conversations and then in the church that make these sins pass off, like, and we're like, okay, well, wait, uh, something about that may sound off, but I'm going to go with it because it wasn't harsh. And I could say in any tone, the calmest voice that I can possibly come up with to say, Hey, gravity, I mean, you might die. You're probably going to die. If you jump off the building, you're probably going to die. And you know what's interesting about that? Not very many people would disagree or say that I was harsh. The people that say you're being harsh or you're being too much, now, there is a way, again, this is that seek to understand, not to misunderstand. There's a way you can say things to people, for sure. So I'm not like giving you a free pass to just go blast somebody. But... If you're bringing truth to that individual, not only is that love, because you don't want them to die by jumping off the building. Right? Well, you're just such a jerk by telling me that kind of truth. What? <clears throat> okay, tolerance. One of my favorites. Tolerance want meant, once meant respecting and hearing those with whom you disagree. 
is get that tolerance actually once meant respecting and hearing those with whom you disagree. If you tell me you're going to go down and feed the homeless, I don't go, well, I'll just be tolerant of you. That doesn't make any sense. I'm tolerant because you're doing something I don't like. Right? I'm tolerant because you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. That's tolerance. And I'm just going to be tolerant of that. So it once meant that you could disagree. Now, it means that you need to celebrate everything that I want to do and say. Celebrate my sin or I will hurt you. You don't agree with me? You're too direct or harsh. Guys, am I the only one that's getting in conversations like this with people? There is a war on truth. If you're doing something wrong, that's why you ask for our, 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 our given tolerance, as I said before. Should I, as a Christian, be tolerant to love them? Should I, as a Christian, be tolerant to love them? No! No! It's okay if you throw out the wrong answer. It's like, these aren't really trick questions. <laughs> not going to trap anybody. But also, if you say no, then that's okay. Or if you disagree with the answer, that's fine. We'll talk after. I know you get moved by the passion. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, you love them by reaching out, to the, reaching out to help them because you aren't tolerant of their sin or position that doesn't align with God's word. If I hear one more person tell me this kind of crap, I'm going to explode because I'm literally wanting to shake them. My heart, my passion for them is come over here, run after the Lord. It is good. Stop thinking this. Stop living this. Stop letting people think whatever they think because it turns into an eternity matter, and I'll explain here why in a minute. Love. My, my buddy Brett, uh, he's in town this weekend, sitting over there. Hey, buddy. Um, he's in Kansas City, in a very liberal part of Kansas City, and he was talking to me last night about there's these signs out in the yard that say, love is love. And I was like, I actually don't even know what that means. Love is love? I mean, God already defined it for me, so please tell me. Like, what, what, is the, what are these people's definition of love? Love is love. And he was saying, well, love is love is, well, doesn't matter, right? Guy, guy, there can be love there. What? Doesn't make any sense. It, well, it means to see the good in other people. I already told you that 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in what? Truth. Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am life. You cannot separate just to suit your own needs. You cannot rip Bible passages out of the Bible 
to use them as your own personal grab bag to suit whatever needs you have and the conversation that you're in. That is a misuse of scripture and you're acting in error. There's one intended meaning and we have to find it. God help us when we just hold to these positions because it's not what your word says. Forgive me. <clears throat> now me, love means that you should approve of everything I do. It's very similar to tolerance. It's wrong to tell people they're doing wrong. You can't call Christians out on their sin. Do you, <laughs> I shared this in Bible study, which by the way, it was awesome at Bible study. Brent did an amazing job. And it was so cool because he was talking about certain things that I was going to be talking about here. And I was like, that's so cool. That's what the unity, the being unified in the body of Christ means. It's one spirit. So, but I, was, I actually mentioned this in Bible study there. I was talking to somebody one time and I was speaking and then they came up afterwards and they talked to me and they're like, you, you can't call people out like that. You can't say that about people. What are you doing? We're, we're not supposed to judge. We're supposed to love. Which, by the way, that judging argument, it's a deception in the church. Um, and I'd be, I, would, I would love to talk about that with you afterwards. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, you can't call Christians out. So, anyway, they came, he came up to me afterwards. And he's like, you can't do that. You can't call people out. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? You can't do that. And I said, okay, so... You're not supposed to call people out, right? So, yeah? Because that's not loving, right? Huh? What'd you just do? What'd you just do? Uh, by the way, I'm fine if you call me out. Like, let's have a conversation. Those of you who know me, you know I'm good with it. Let's have a conversation. But you can't come to me and say that... You can't call people out when you just did it. What is that? It's deception. You're using something, you're twisting it and using it for your own personal needs as a biblical grab bag so we can love. <laughs> Drives me crazy. Paul criticized Peter in the book of Galatians. Galatians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So if you say that you can't call anybody out as a Christian, then there is what? A contradiction. Well, what do we know about contradictions? Can there be any in God's word? What? No. no. So there's a problem there, isn't there? The problem is you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, if, you agree, if you disagree with God's word, the problem is you, okay? But anyway, okay. In fact, if you love me and I'm doing or about to do something wrong, I would expect you to call me out. In fact, you don't love me like you say you do if you're seeing something that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing and you say nothing. Apply that to your kids. I know you, that people don't parent like that, well, you're like, well, you don't know my friend, man. He sucks as a parent. No, anyway. Uh, no, but I'm just saying, like, that, you don't parent that way. Have you ever been in a situation where your kid's running at the street and you go, no! Whoa. Got to be quick. Got to be quick. 
but that's harsh. You don't love me. What? You're literally saving your child's life. If you say that's not love, I don't know what love is. Well, I do because God defined it. This was pretty interesting. I was reading this article, watching this, uh, and two Christians were having a debate with a couple people from LGBTQ, and they were saying that love requires approval for what we are doing. That's the whole, that was the whole premise of the conversation, that love requires approval. You don't love me, actually, if you don't approve of what I'm doing. Guys, I'm telling you, if you have not had these conversations, and this theology is getting in the church. And it's the people that you see with bumper stickers on there. Okay. So, LGBTQ, they were saying that that love requires uh, approval for what we are doing. And the Christian said, huh, do you love us? They said, yes. So the Christian said, well, do do you approve of our position that that's not the definition of love and what you're doing is actually wrong and it's sin and it's not biblical? He said, well, no. Because then you just lost the debate. Love doesn't require your approval. I am so thankful that God loves me in such a way that it doesn't require me to do anything. But yet, this theology is running rampant in the church today, watering down the message, and we're being deceived by it. And it's happening here in our backyard. I would argue even more because we're in the Bible Belt, holding up the pants of America. Anyway, we're... I don't know. Anyway, but it's a joke because it's happening in the church here in our backyard. I'm having conversations with people that I, well, need to continue to have conversations with. Lust. We beautify our lust and call it love. Numerous scriptures that declare God's position of sexual uh, immorality. These I, uh, I grabbed from um, gotquestions.org. It's a great, actually, apologetics website. If you haven't checked that out, it's pretty awesome. But all the vor- verses on sexual immorality that I, that I came up with were Acts 15.20. I don't have these up here, so if you, you want to jot them down, you can jot them down. But Acts 15.20, 1 Corinthians 5.1, 1 Corinthians 6.13, 1 Corinthians 10.8, 2 Corinthians 12.21, Galatians 5.19. I was kidding when I said write them down. Um, Galatians 5.19, Ephesians 5.3, Colossians 3.15, 1 uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, and Jude 1.7. Just for starters. The Greek word for sexual immorality or fornication in those verses is pornea, which literally means unlawful, unlawful lust. That's literally what it means in the Greek, unlawful lust, pornea. Since the only form of lawful sexuality is the marriage of one man and one woman, Genesis 2.24 and Matthew 19.5, anything outside of the marriage, whether adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, or anything else is unlawful or it's sin. 
living together before marriage. I run into that a lot. I sit on the board of uh, an event called The Engaged Life and serve at the events as mentors. And I talk with kids there and kids. <laughs> They're young adults. Yeah, to me, I'm ancient, right? Thank you for that. I appreciate that. That wasn't in my notes either. Okay. Uh, so, so anyway, but I'm talking to families. Or It's Sunday morning. I haven't had much coffee. Okay. I've been talking to couples. At the, so you're a mentor. You sit around a table. You've got people that you're talking to. 99% of them are living together, at least that have been at my table. Church-going people, we get in conversations about salvation, and then one person actually had the, the cojones to say, well, I don't think that's in Scripture. Like, where does it say in Scripture that you can't live together? I was like, okay, this is going to be a good-spirited debate. And I said, you're right, that's not in the Bible anywhere, but can you tell me that you're not having sex? Sorry? What? Because if you're having sex and you're not married, you're acting like you're married and you're actually by unlawful lust and the definitions that Paul or that God put in the word, you are sinning. You are living in sin and you are in a position where your relationship is not sanctified, ordained by God, and you're getting off on the wrong foot, destined for a life of sin, and probably going to break up your marriage. And those are just the worldly statistics. I don't even have to go to the Bible for that. Worldly statistics will tell you living together before marriage, actually you have a greater chance of having a divorce than not. But it's happening everywhere. And it's like, oh, it's, 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 this is the beauty part. Oh, it's fine. Like we just thought, I hear it, it's like, oh, you guys are living together. Okay, cool. Like what did you well, we just, man, it was beautiful. Like, we just felt like we really should take our relationship to the next level. You know, and it also made sense because we're trying to pay off debt, and, you know, it just made sense for them to get rid of their house over here so we could just kind of live in this house over here. Well, wait a minute. You just bought a house. It was three times a second. No, anyway. There's lots of, lots of conversation, like, things that they'll say. But my point is, is it's like, wait, are you serious? Like, it sounds so good. We're taking the, the relationship to the next level. It's so good. It's sin. That's what it is. So why don't you just call it for what it is? And so we can actually deal with this issue and move on together in the unity of the faith. Instead of hiding behind your sin, which I call hiding behind the cross. I, I love it when Christians do this. Like, I hide behind the cross. It's like, oh, well, Jesus said that. Blah, blah. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't care about your opinion. That's not what God's word said. And you don't get to redefine it. You don't. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, but you don't. God said it. Are we okay? Five, I know my, my, five of my brothers here are good. I love you, J.E. Entanglement. Have we heard this word? This is the new word for adultery. Entanglement. We just got entangled. 
It's just, you know, entangled. What? You were entangled, but it's sin. Another word that is trying to be passed off. Choice or freedom to choose. This has always just logically not made sense to me. And it seems like this conversation is coming up probably more than the others right now just because of Roe v. Wade. Can anybody relate? And even if you're not getting in conversations with people, you're witnessing it. I'm not even on social media, and I get in lots of conversations. Freedom to choose. Well, before that got hijacked by Satan, think of freedom to choose. Freedom to choose what? Freedom to choose what? So imagine this. You hear your five-year-old kid come up behind you, and he's like, Dad, can I kill it? What's your first question? Can I kill what? Because if it's a spider, sure. If it's your baby brother, no. Right? <laughs> Stick to the notes. Okay. It's a way to cover up your inconvenience. But it sounds so nice when we have a freedom to choose. And don't, listen, I'm not saying there aren't circumstances that are worth a conversation there, okay? I'm not saying across the board. I'm just, I'm just, hear the point that I'm trying to make. Now, biblically, it is across the board. But I'm just saying, like, this is one of those, I'm trying to say this because I'm saying, seek to understand the heart, not to immediately in your mind go, well, whatever you would say, but after that reaction. I don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> All right. Because here's the deal. I've known, unfortunately, I've got a, a great buddy of mine who had a miscarriage. When I watched them go through that, that was hard. That was tough on them. Has anybody witnessed that or seen that? Right? Wasn't that tough? When I talk to them, they've never been grieving because they thought, man, it's just so sad. Why are you sad? Because I just lost a choice. That doesn't make any sense. But these are words that have been hijacked by Satan, and then people adopt it, and the churches are letting it happen. The church is here today in our backyard. Listen. You need to tell everybody that you know, get with a church that's going to bend their knee to only Christ the Lord. That's it. But I'm comfortable. I feel good when I go. Okay, well, then you're not growing. We already established that. Do I need to go back to my house? Oh. <laughs> um, this is disgusting. There was an interview where the, a director of a Planned Parenthood um, location was doing an interview, and 
when she was talking, she kept saying products of conception. And the whole video was actually selling baby parts. And she kept referring to these parts as products of conception. Sounds so good, doesn't it? Products of conception. We're all products of conception. You need to get me a, a get, somebody give me a whiteboard and an easel, and I'll tell you how we're all products of conception. Like, we're, that doesn't, oh, man. It's, it's beauty to deceive. Products of conception. It's not. You murdered a child, and then, to make matters worse, you're selling the baby parts? Well, get saved, because God's got a special place in hell for you. That wasn't in my notes either. Um, you're, you're trying to make evil sound okay. You're trying to make evil sound good. Diversity inclusion. If you don't believe like we do, you'll be excluded for holding a diverse view. What? That doesn't make any sense. You realize that's what it is? Diversity inclusion. But by the way, if you don't do the diversity inclusion training, you're going to be fired because we don't like your diverse view. It doesn't make any sense. But yet, if you're not on your... Well, I'm not going to let the, get the punchline yet. You must support behaviors that God does... You must support behaviors that God does, does not want to support. That's diversity inclusion. God already dealt with that. Everybody in Christ is the same. There's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. If you're in Christ... You're my brother, you're my sister, full stop. There is no difference. That's diversity and inclusion. That's real diversity and inclusion. Progressive. Progressive Christians. Have you heard this term? <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, I emphatically nodding yes. It's sad that we have. We would rather change God than change ourselves. They are neither progressive or Christians, actually. That's not progressive. They call it progressive because it sounds good. That's not progressive. They disagree with Jesus on gender. They disagree with Jesus on hell. They disagree with Jesus on everything. Listen, if Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and there's a, you know, a group of us there in that time that's just like, you know what? Those sound good and all, but we've got our own Ten Commandments that we actually want to kind of put on there for maybe potential. Anybody wants to follow those? Then you're not a follower of Yahweh. Could you imagine? It doesn't work like that in anything else, but yet the Christians get attacked. You know, that's part of the whole plan anyway. But that's, it just doesn't make any sense. And you get these intellectuals that are like, well, I just think that blah, blah, blah. No, just shut up. You, you say you're smart, and yet you're the dumbest person on the planet. Because it's not hard. God says, here's Ten Commandments, follow them. Oh, uh, well, I think that, uh, you know. No, it's like it doesn't work in anything else. You don't, Mr. Buddhist, you don't go and follow the... Uh, I don't even know, but whatever, you, you, you follow the, Buddha, the, the, the teachings of Buddha or you're not a follower of Buddha, right? 
You don't do something and then say, I'm a follower of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you obey his commandments and the standard that he has set so that we can live in freedom and not bound by sin. Equality no longer means equality. As human beings or before the law, it's quality of behavior. There is no equality in heaven. There is no equality here. You have equality in Christ. They try to change words to mean what they don't mean. Same thing with the word gay. Hijacking another word. Make it sound good. Make it sound... And then I will hijack the rainbow too. What? It's because these words sound okay, and over time, even if they don't sound good, good at first, they will over time, if you're not in the Word, but they will over time because these words sound like, it's like there's nothing wrong. You guys hear what I'm saying? Justice. Used to mean individuals getting what they deserve fair and impartial application of the law. Now justice means equality out, uh, of outcome, redistribu redistribution of wealth, stealing from one group to give to another, right? Social justice, it's ugly cousin, used to mean helping to care for orphans, widows, the poor, etc. Now it means oppressed groups must be liberated, which in turns mean, turn means discriminate against groups of people based on their perceived social standard. They need to be liberated by the oppressors. I, I could say a lot more about this. Critical race theory. Let's punish the people that did well and even things out. It turns Martin Luther King on its head. I have a dream that one day my children will be judged based on the content of the character instead of the color of their skin. Social justice does exactly the opposite. It judges people in groups based on the color of their skin instead of the content of their character. Galatians 3, we are all unified in Christ. I already mentioned that. If you or I express an opinion that opposes the progressive culture, then you are a homophobic or a transphobic or whatever it is. You're an intolerant and a bigot. Why? Because God said he didn't like it? Because it's sin? supposed to love you? The Bible says that Satan comes in as an angel of light and demons as agents of righteousness. If Satan came with a, with a pick, pitchfork and horns, we would be able to, to spot him pretty easily and we would reject that sin, right? But that's not how it works. The Bible says as he comes as an angel of light, something beautiful. And demons as agents of righteousness. As agents of righteousness. Can you just wrap your head around that for a minute? That demons act as agents of righteousness? How do you know then if you're being led by a demon of righteousness and actual the spirit of the Lord? We're going to get to it. I've ran into people who say that you know, they're, they're saved and they don't want anything to do with Jesus or I don't believe in him anymore. And we've accepted that in the, in the church. Like that's, guys, that's tragic. 
this is a different this is a different subject with apostasy and all these and all these other things but i'm just going to say first john 2:19 they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that they may that they might be manifest that none were actually of us you cannot lose your salvation but yet here the whole book of jude is dedicated to people like this false teachers are people that were actually not saved in the first place. And I ran into them when we were in Bible school, we would go out with teams and we would, we would witness. Deep Ellum was not a great place when I was in college in Texas. We would go down there and people would be like, man, I already tried that before. Man, I don't want to have anything to do with that. What? Why? Because another part of beauty is another cancer that I see in the church, which is they're not actually saved by the true gospel. Churches are saying, you know, you can have a salvation that will improve your life. We've all heard it. There's a, there's a God-sized hole that only he can fill. Now, is all that untrue? No, I'm not saying that. That's not the gospel. Because guess what? When your life is not better, because the Bible says that I might know him in the fellowship the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. Count it all joy when you go through various trials, right? We're not promised a better life. We're promised, this is a tough, we're in the fallen world. This is tough. We're promised glorification that we can have the freedom to overcome sin in this world, and then we're going to live sinless with him in heaven. That's the promise. But the reality is, is that you and I were both sinners, right? Am I losing you? Is it too long? Need more coffee? Because I'm telling you guys, this is, this is what's happening in the church today. And you need to be equipped and you need to be aware of what's going on. And this is one of the lies that are being passed off in the church today. They're not actually being told the real gospel. The real gospel is you were a sinner and you were condemned to a life in hell but because of the sacrifice, God sending his son died on the cross for our sin. There was blood shed to cover our multitude of sins, forgiving us past, present, and future. And he, he died, he rose again, seated at the right hand of the Father, and now he left his Holy Spirit to live and guide and direct us. That's the gospel. Not when you have something bad that goes on in your life, and then now it's like, well, crap, you know, I, didn't, I, I don't have this improved life. So there's a, I've said, I've, I've used this analogy for a couple of you before, but I take this from Ray Comfort. He, he's, I, I've always enjoyed his ministry and what he does. But Ray Comfort, um, he uh, uses this analogy where there's, there's two planes. Plane A, plane B, there's a person on plane A where the, the stewardess comes in and says, hey, put this parachute on because it's going to improve your flight. So during the course of that flight, you know, the weight of the parachute, like back pain, it's hurting, he gets knocked in the, in the knee with the cart lady, you know, going back and forth through the aisle, spills boiling hot coffee. Anyway, that's not improving the flight, right? So he throws off the parachute, and as far as he's concerned, he's not going to put it on again. Plane B, 
Same thing happens. Different guy, different plane, but all the same stuff happens. But he didn't throw the parachute off. Why? Because the stewardess came to him and said, hey, put this parachute on because it's not going to make your, your flight feel better like the uh, plane A. Put this parachute on because it's going to save you from the jump to come. And that's why they didn't take the parachute off when all the same stuff happened because they weren't told that it was going to improve their flight. He put it on to save them from the jump to come. That's the gospel. It doesn't matter. Yes, I get it. We all have our stuff. We all go through things. But man, dig in and lean on the Lord even more. He didn't say that he would take the storm away, but he will give you the peace within it. Because he is your bountiful supply. He is all that you need. Uh, okay, yeah, I went way off my notes. <laughs> I already said that. Okay, next slide. All right, <laughs> hang with me. We're actually, we're going to go a little bit long today, or longer. Um, so, so with that, we're going to talk about sanctification and the process of sanctification and overcoming all of this and how to stand in truth and not be taken one way or the other based on all of these falsehoods. That's what they are. You know, if you were to put food coloring or like, you know, you got these little, I don't know, stevia things or whatever, and, you know, it's like, you know, cranberry or whatever, and you got a glass of water and you put a couple drops in it, and it changes the entire color of the glass of water. Well, how do you know? How, how do you know how to separate that? How do you know even what part is actually, how much of it is water and how did you put, how much of that sweetener did you put in there? So how, you sit here and you say, well, yeah, but I could spot this. I can see this. Well, how do you know? How can you go in almost with a surgical knife and separate that? And I'm telling you, today, a lot of people are not told what sanctification truly is. Thank God I'm at a church that bends the knee to only Christ. But it is the word. Justification, per se, does not make anyone holy. It simply declares him to be not guilty before God and therefore treated as holy. It doesn't make you holy. The actual change toward holiness occurs with sanctification. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, are you up there? Yep. Um, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. How are you to be holy before God? That's the sanctification process that we're going to spend a lot of time on. And I want to really drill this in because even into me, because this is where the attack of the enemy really spends, he spends a lot of time and energy on this because there's spiritual blinders. There's a famine of the word of God. I had a buddy who emailed me I'm going to read this to you. I thought he explained his frustration pretty well, but here's what, it said. Well, here's what he said. Man, it seems like the pastor gives me all these action steps on Sunday for how I can be better and live better, a better life. I leave church feeling like I can conquer the world, like, okay, I've got it, I've got it this time. I can do this. Sunday afternoon is great. Monday is good, but not as good as Sunday. Tuesday isn't as good as Monday, uh, as Monday was, and Wednesday I full-on failed at the action steps I was given on Sunday. Wednesday evening, I feel horrible. I feel guilt and shame. 
Wednesday night through Friday morning. Friday and Saturday, I mean, it's the weekend, so my mind is off of it for the most part, and then Sunday morning I hear the next message with a new list of action steps and the cycle continues. I want to be pleasing in God's sight. I want to please him, but feel overall like I'm failing. I keep trying to hang in there for myself, my wife and my kids. I love the Lord, but want to break free from the cycle. Can we grab lunch and talk through this? I need some godly counsel. Can anyone relate to that? The action steps? How many of you have ever struggled with what God wanted you to do and then felt bad because you didn't measure up? I have. You're like, what you mean, which day? <laughs> right? <clears throat> Paul could relate specifically in Romans 7. So the book of Romans uh, identifies the author of the book of Romans as the Apostle Paul. We already know that Paul was just the instrument. The Holy Spirit wrote it. And it indicates that Paul used a man named Tertius to actually transcribe the words. But purpose of the writing, as, as all the apostle, Paul's epistles to the church, his purpose in writing was to proclaim the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ by teaching, teaching doctrine, the message of salvation, and to edify and encourage the believers who had received this letter. It underscores that Christianity is far more than just doctrine. It is an essential roadmap for daily living. It's a book about salvation and what to do with it. That's how I summarize that. It's a book about salvation and what to do with it. Because how many times do we go to church and we hear, okay, here's the old car, let's get saved. But then what do you do after that? I was listening to a podcast, actually Casey was, and then I overheard it, but the guy was talking about his buddy came, coming to him and he was like, well, I got saved. I think that the church was talking about that, but now what? And I don't think there's enough time spent on the now what? People don't know what to do. So we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time here in Romans, or the majority of the time, or the remainder of the time. <laughs> Romans 7, 7. So what shall we say then? Is the law... Yes, we're up there. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetous, covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. That's not my notes either. Okay. Romans 7, 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me, all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Romans 7, 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Romans 7, 10. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Romans 7, 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Right? We've all heard this, right? We've all heard this, this, this kind of 
transparent struggle that he's having. I'm trying to do what you want me to do, God, but every time I fall short, I, I, I want to do that so desperately, but every time, has anybody been there? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Romans 7:18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells in me, for, or, or, uh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how, I to, how to perform what is good, I do not find. This is basically saying, I don't, I don't even know how. I keep struggling, but I don't know how to fix it. For the good that I, I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I do, but this has always got me on tongue twisters here. I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if what I do, now if I do, now if I do what, somebody want to read this for me? If I, now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I find then that a law, a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Okay, so here's what's going on. We already talked about the struggle that Paul was, was um, articulating. Romans 7, 12, Paul defines the law. Romans 7, 13 through 20, Paul's talking about the struggle. Romans 7, 21 through 23, Paul clearly identifies three laws. And this is the part that I really want to hone in, and I pray that the Lord would just hit this in your heart, in your mind, just like with a laser pointer. First, we see in Romans 7.21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who, do, who wills to do good. It's a law. It's not up for debate. It's a law. He's saying it's a law, okay? For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Okay? Not law, right? The law of God. But I see another law in my members. What's our members? Everything, right? There's another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. But it's another law, right? The law of my mind. So, we know the law of gravity, right? You can't change it. These are laws. But I see another law, verse 23, in my members warring against the law of my mind. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior. So then with my mind, myself, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. What is it? There's three laws. And I would write these down. There are three laws here that, is, that are being identified in Romans. First, it's the law of my mind. The law of man wanting to do the law of God. Right? Said so the law of my mind. And that's what this whole struggle is about, right? I want to do that. I want to. God, I see your law. That's the second 
the law of God. Oh, I'm sorry, the first is the law of God. Second is, <laughs> see if you're paying attention. Law of God is number one, the law of my mind, the, which is the law of man wanting to do the law of God is number two. Number three is the law of sin and death in my members. You guys see that? First, there's the law of God. Second, there's the law of man, of my mind, wanting to do the law of God. Then there's the third, which is the law of sin and death in my members. So the law of sin and death in my members, my flesh, every time I want to do the law of God, because of the law of my mind, wanting to do the law of God, the sin cancels it out every single time. And there goes the hamster wheel. Right? That is the struggle that he is talking about. That's why it can't be broken. It can't be broken because they're laws. Every single time we get caught in this trap, I want to do the law of God I, because of the law of man, wanting to do the law of God, but I can't because it's canceled out because of the law of sin and death in my members. And we go round and round and round, and that's the email that I got from my buddy. And that's the churches giving their seven action steps on Sunday. Here's what you need to do to be better. And then you feel like, golly, I've failed by Wednesday. Well, God forgive us. Why do the pastors think that they can give the action steps when Paul couldn't even do it himself? And we wonder why people get frustrated and go, well, gosh, I never overcome this. I can't overcome this. I don't have the power to overcome this. Well, you're right. You don't. It's the Lord. But I'm going to talk to you about how you actually overcome it and get off the hamster wheel. This is that sanctification process. So if we go further, this is how we do it. Chapter 8, Paul, the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 tells us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the Spirit of life. That's the fourth law. In Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Why aren't we talking about the solution? The only thing that breaks that cycle is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So then why am I going to a church who is not bending the knee only to Christ to give me my seven action steps just so I can stay on that stupid hamster wheel? Guys, is anybody, like, does this make sense at all? It's a soulish experience. That's not a spirit-led experience. The action steps only appeal to the soul. That's why we hear it and we go, okay, this is good. All right, I got this. Yeah, man, I'm going to get through this. Mm. Crap, I failed. It's the law of the spirit of life. So yet we spend the time focusing on the hamster wheel 
if the solution is laid out here by the Holy Spirit through Paul to write, the solution is the law of the spirit of life that breaks the cycle of the hamster wheel, then why aren't we talking about, my first question, hand goes up, says, okay, time out. How do I focus on the things of the spirit? If that's the solution, which it is, we saw it, Paul said it was, even I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And I try so hard and it's always, I'm let down by the law of sin and death in my members. It's the law of the spirit of life. Well, guess what? You want to have the discernment to spot falsehoods in the church. You want to have the discernment to be able to spot the, the deception that's happening in our culture, Satan hijacking the words and trying to approach us in beauty, it is being led by the Spirit. It is, and there is only way, one way to be led by the Spirit. It's to be in the Word. It is to be in the Word. And this is where we're going to spend more time next week. Next week's going to be really good. Because there's, <clears throat> there is, yes, your mind, emotion, and will, which is part of your soul. But not a lot of people spend time talking about that the spirit has three parts as well. It's made up of your, of your conscience, fellowship, and intuition. And how you exercise your spirit so that your spirit flows throughout all the faculties of your being. That is what the fruit of the spirit is. You don't have to manufacture your fruit. Like the church tells us, I'm stuck in a soulish experience. I'm stuck with the action steps. You're trying to manufacture the fruit of the Spirit. It can't be done. Fruit of the Spirit is organic. It is literally your spirit being exercised, flowing through all the other faculties of your being, and you live out Christ, which is what Paul meant. For me to live is Christ. He didn't say, I act like Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ. Well, how do you live out Christ? Has anybody asked that question? How am I actually led by the Spirit? How do I get off the hamster wheel? How do I help other people get off the hamster wheel that are hurting, that can't spot truth, that have the blinds over their eyes, that are living in deception? All because our church makes us feel comfortable. Or that's what the media is pushing. There's a better way. And it's his word. So we're going to next week talk about the spirit, the function of the spirit. I'm going to lay it all out. I've got a diagram. It's, it's going to be awesome. And that's what we're going to be covering next week. How do we gain life in the spirit? How do we get off the hamster wheel? How do we do that? It's here in his word. But hopefully I've been able to tie this together or Holy Spirit, I hope that I haven't gotten too much of myself in this message and these are, have been your words. But regardless of what's happening, the deceptions in the church, the deceptions all around us, people that are living life and they think they do, hiding, that they're living life as a Christian, hiding behind the cross, justifying their needs, not actually saved to the real gospel that they were a sinner and Christ saved you. 
Because I don't know about you, but if, if, if Christ did that for me, I'd want to follow him. And I'd want to know what he says. So if you don't know this Christ that we speak of, don't wait another minute. If you're feeling hesitation to reach out, maybe you're online and you, you've got just that address in the top line, but you're just paralyzed at typing the rest of the message and sending it, send it. We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. Don't let another day go by. Don't be caught in anything other than God's saving grace and his redemption plan for you because he loves us that much. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. The words that are coming out of my mouth, Lord, can't even express or articulate how much I love you. And you know what? My love is pathetic compared to yours for me. So Lord, fill me with more of you. Give me the desire for more of you every single day. I want to know you more tomorrow than I do today. Holy Spirit, guide me, guide us. Not only to be vessels and agents for your truth, but to have that truth said and spoken to others that are around us where it penetrates the callousness of the hearts, the, the social crap that's around us, where it will take, that you would take the blinders off of them, that they could see you. We're at war. And Lord, I don't want to be on the sidelines. I want to stand firm for you, stand firm in the faith, and locking arms with my brothers and sisters here in the battlefield, in the trenches. I will not give up or go quietly. That's love, because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.